Good morning, everybody. I hope you had a good week. Welcome to Narnia. <laughs> Bitter cold. Uh, good to be back with you this morning. This will complete our series this morning. Um, thoughts to any, any of you out there or out there on the internet that are watching that are dealing with livestock of any sort. Best wishes to you, and since I mean that sincerely. Difficult times as far as that goes. As I mentioned, today brings us to our final message in our short series on biblical themes. So thank you for allowing me this opportunity. I do want to say that uh, for your encouragement and your attentiveness. I very much appreciated that. But over the past five weeks, we have covered subjects of the Bible, what it is and what it says about itself. From there, we moved into this four-part series beginning with creation. We followed up our discussion of creation by considering the fall of humankind into sin Last week, we discussed the unfolding plan of God's redemption. We considered the shadows of redemption, such as the exodus, and the means of our redemption, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect lamb without blemish. We learned that we are justified by faith through the redemption that comes through his sacrificial death and subsequent resurrection. We, We talked about that. We also spoke last week about how we as the redeemed should live in light of our redemption. Today, we will cover the theme of restoration. So in sequence, we have creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And it's my hope that this topic will be of great comfort to us as believers. And if you are here and not a believer, my prayer is that you're able to see that apart from our hope in God restoring all things to himself, this life with its heartaches and misery is going to be as good as it gets. If we consider our themes again, we know that in the beginning God created all things by a sovereign will out of nothing and pronounced that it was very good. But then sin is introduced into the world by the disobedience of our first parents in the garden. And as we saw, it was a quick slide to the abyss. Relationships were fractured. The depravity of mankind is evident to the point God was sorry that he made man on the earth, it says in Genesis. The bulk of scripture we then find is God's plan in redeeming or taking back, we talked about last week, a people for himself through the sacrifice of his own son. But all of this is flowing to a consummation, a reordering of the universe where sin is ultimately and forever destroyed, a new creation where Christ reigns over the earth and Satan and the unredeemed are condemned. That will be the subject of today's message. And if I had to title it, it would be this, and it's quite long. But the already not yet of restoration, founded in hope, and the consummation of God's promised kingdom. Some of the material will sound familiar from last week, but just know that that's an emphasis of the importance of the subject. And our scripture reading for today will be found in 1 Peter. So if you want to be turning there, 1 Peter chapter 1. We spent quite a bit of time in 1 Peter in this uh, series 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3. That's where we're going to be. So just for context, this is Peter's letter to the churches that are scattered throughout Asia Minor under stiff persecution. We talked about that, just touched on it briefly. Peter is trying to encourage the readers to keep faith. That's the point of the letter. To not turn back, to focus on Christ, to live in obedience in the face of strong opposition. That's the point of his letter. That's why he is writing to hold fast to their hope. In the context of our own series, Peter is letting them know that while restoration has begun because of the work of Christ, 
the ultimate restoration still lies ahead and that they should focus on what God has promised to them. And if you would, I would ask the congregation to stand for the reading of God's word and remain standing for the opening prayer. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, we're grateful to have the opportunity to be here, to gather together corporately as the body of Christ on a difficult day weather-wise, but we're happy to be here and grateful for a warm place to, to congregate and to worship and song and worship through your word. And Father, for the things that we consider today, I just pray that you would prepare hearts and minds. Give us clarity of thought that your Holy Spirit would truly imprint these things onto our minds, that we would go out here transformed, that we would, that we would be a message of transformation in our own selves to a world that is lost and is falling, Father. Guide and direct us. I pray that you would help us to cling to this hope and to bask in it, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to handle the first part of the message in a kind of an expositional fashion. So, and then verses 6 to 9 will be kind of a summary due to time restraints. It's a, a fairly long piece. But verse 3, we're going to kind of go verse by verse through this passage. So verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's verse 3. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter begins his letter... This is the first part of the letter, by pronouncing a blessing on God for his goodness to all of them. So he is blessing God. And what is Peter thanking God for? He's thanking God for causing them to be born again. He is reminding his readers that their very salvation has been won, not by their doing, but by his great mercy. And let that hit full force. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, here in this building, with other like-minded folks, it is because God has extended his great mercy to you in causing you to be born again. And not just born again. Look at the text. We are born again to, or more precisely, it would be into a living hope. So this preposition here is the word into. It's translated to, but it's, it's technically into. It gives it a fuller or a richer sense. We're not simply born again to go about life ho-hum. We are born into something, something living, something sure, something powerful. We must understand the fullness of the word hope here. In the context of our language today, and I've, I touched on this, I believe, a couple weeks ago, 
It's not a very strong word, the word hope in our context, that we use the word hope. For example, and I think I may have used this before, I might say, well, I hope it warms up next week. Not really knowing if it will or not. It's really more like me saying, I wish it would warm up next week. That idea falls far short of what Peter is trying to get across to his persecuted readers. The kind of hope I express, the kind of hope I express for a change in the weather is going to be little comfort to them, to the, to the readers of Peter's letter. If you're one day staring at persecution, which is a real threat, how much better is it going to make you feel if someone says, Hey, I see you're being persecuted. Hope your day gets better. Not very comforting. But that's not the hope that Peter or Scripture is trying to convey. And I would have you listen to how the New Dictionary of Theology deals with this word hope. It's quite long, but I think it's, it's worthwhile. And this is kind of the idea of the word hope in a biblical context. It says this, To hope means to look forward expectantly for God's future activity. The ground of hope is God's past activity in Jesus Christ, who points the way to God's purposes for his creation. Thus, the believer looks forward to the resurrection of God's people and the arrival of God's kingdom, confident because Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom and has been raised from the dead. It's right there in verse 3. In worship, the believer prays, your kingdom come. And celebrates the Lord's Supper in anticipation of the heavenly banquet because he looks back to Christ's death and resurrection, which opens the way to the kingdom. In community with others, the believer experiences the Spirit as a foretaste of the eschatological, that just means the ending kingdom, because he longs for a better country. Do you sense that longing? He longs for a better country. He adopts the attitude of a pilgrim, which is Peter's point in the letter, that this is not your home. But as long as the believer lives in hope rather than in the fullness of the kingdom, he walks by faith rather than by sight. His life is marked more by suffering than by triumph. That's talking about in this world. A Christian's hope is not utopian, this pie in the sky, by and by kind of thing. Something that the, the faith, word of faith teachers will sometimes blasphemously push at the church. The believer expects progress, but not perfection, which will only come by God's own act at the final coming of Christ. He can cope with human failure without despair because he trusts the God of hope, whose kingdom is surely coming. That's what hope means. It is an expectant longing for what we know is coming. So we are born again to this living hope, a confidence in better things to come. Is Peter done? What else does he say that we're born again into? Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter buttresses his encouragement by letting his readers and us know that the content of that hope is an inheritance. That's what it is. Flip, with, uh, if you will, to Ephesians 1. Paul makes very similar comments in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. Listen to what Paul says and what he's saying to the Ephesians. Does it sound familiar? In him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. 
having been, been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in, there's that word, the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Does that clarify things? Wow, that's great news to hear that we have an inheritance waiting and sure, waiting for us. This must be better than anything Uncle Joe could have possibly left in his final will and testament, right? How does Peter describe this inheritance? Well, he gives us three words. Look at the three words there in verse 4. First, the inheritance is imperishable. That is to say, it is permanent. It will not rot or decay. It is imperishable. Second, it is undefiled. So it is morally and religiously pure. Peter invites us to contemplate a heavenly inheritance unpolluted by sin and containing nothing unworthy of God's full approval. Is that not something worth serious thought? I'm telling you there are times when my spirit groans under sin. I don't know if you feel that, but I feel it. Look at Romans chapter 7 if you wonder. Paul dealt with this. If you want to look at Romans chapter 7, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Paul is saying in Romans 7, before he builds into Romans 8, knowing the assurance of what waits for the redeemed. I long for this. Peter also says the inheritance is unfading. It will never get boring or old hat. I've heard some people say, Aaron, don't you think heaven's going to be boring? No, never. It can't be boring. Is the inheritance safe? Absolutely. Peter says it is kept in heaven for you. The form of the verb, the verb kept indicates a completed past activity by God, okay? A completed past activity by God with results that are still continuing into the present. God himself has stored this up for you and it will never be denied to you. And Peter ends with a personal pronoun here. Christian, this is for you, Peter is saying. It's a sure thing. Do you want some more good news? Verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is God guarding the inheritance, that's what he's talking about in those two verses, God himself is guarding the inheritance. He is also guarding you. Your present and your future are being guarded by your maker. The readers needed to be reminded of this, and so do we. Life gets tough, and it can get much tougher. They receive the protection, they receive the protection through faith, committing themselves in trust and obedience to God. That's the point. So what is the goal of the protection? What is the goal? There's a goal that God has in protecting both the inheritance and us. The salvation that will be revealed in the last time. So do you see the already not yet idea that I was getting at earlier? They are saved, they are being saved, 
and they are going to be saved. Past, present, future. You can take that into the whole idea of the kingdom of God. What did Jesus say when he appeared? What did John the Baptist say? Repent for the kingdom of God is, anybody know it? At hand. It's here. It was ushered in by Jesus Christ. We are in and realizing it partially right now, but it's going to be consummated when the kingdom comes in its fullness. So the already has happened, but we're still waiting for the ultimate consummation. Does that make sense? Our justification came when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, but in a sense, we are continually being saved, carried along by God as we journey through this foreign land, awaiting our eternal home, which is our ultimate salvation. The full possession of all the blessings of our redemption, that is what we're waiting for. Peter reminds them and us, all the more that every preparation for the final unveiling of this final salvation is completed. That's very important to remember. The curtain could go up at any moment. We're only awaiting the final signal. Do you believe this, church? Do you believe that that's the case? There's nothing waiting to occur. Christ has ushered it in. We're waiting for the consummation, and we're waiting for it with great anticipation and longing, I hope. The kingdom was inaugurated at the coming of Christ and secured it as a resurrection and all things are in place for the consummation. And I would ask you, are you ready for that day? So having placed a solid foundation for their hope, what does Peter exhort his readers to do in 6 to 9? And we're gonna kind of use this as a survey, verses 6 to 9. So he sets this foundation. What is he telling his readers to do there in 6 to 9? He's telling them, to find joy in their suffering. To find joy in their suffering. How? It's a good question to ask. We sang, I love the song that we sang earlier, repeating that idea of you are good and, and telling God that he is good. That is a scriptural truth. God is good. There are gonna be times in our life when our mouths might be mouthing that but we are not feeling that in the depths of our soul because of the trials of which we are feeling. That day, one day, is going to be gone forever when we stand in the presence of Christ. So how do we do that? By placing our focus and trust in him in light of verses three to five. The promises have been laid out and we need to focus on them despite temporal suffering or suffering that takes place in this world. Peter is making a contrast here between what awaits them in heaven and what they are experiencing now. He encourages them that their trials will test their faith and that testing will ultimately glorify God. That's what he's saying in 6 to 9. Why? Getting glory out of their misery? What is it that glorifies God here? Well, I believe it is the trust that Christians maintain in the midst of difficulty. This brings glory to God, and I do not say that in a trite manner. This teaching is immensely difficult for so many of you who have experienced great suffering. It's true. But we cling to those promises because we know that hope is sure. I remember 
years ago when I was going to Mid-American Nazarene, one of my uh, professors there was Dr. Larry Fine. And uh, I grew to be pretty good friends with him. And he invited me into his office one time. So I went into Dr. Fine's office and we were talking and I, he was sitting at his desk. And over his desk, I noticed hanging on the wall above him was a crucifix. And I had to ask, because I'm a question asker, why the crucifix? The crucifix tends to be more of a, a Catholic symbol, whereas we have the cross behind us. And I just noticed, and I had to ask Dr. Fine, I'm like, I see you have a crucifix hanging on the wall. Tell me about that. And he said, you know, Aaron, he said, I understand that that's more of a, tends to be more of a Catholic symbol. He said, but when I see a crucifix, he said, I look at Christ and I see him on the cross with his hands outstretched and I hear him saying, do you trust me? That stuck with me for years. Peter thus shows simultaneous grief and joy to be normal in the Christian life. Grief arises because of the many difficulties encountered in this fallen world, but faith looks to the unseen reality beyond this present moment. This brief existence in which we live, and we are to live in this existence with rejoicing, knowing that the hope is sure. And look quickly at verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him, talking about Jesus. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's how Peter ends that part of the passage. And it really reminds me of John chapter 20. Let's just turn there right quick. We're in a warm building. We've got all kinds of time. John chapter 20. Look at verse 26. It says this, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with him. This is after the resurrection. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So this again, this is after the resurrection, Jesus in his resurrected body. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Listen to Thomas's answer. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And it makes me wonder if Peter, when he's writing, has that message in his mind. Steadfast faith receives the reward of salvation. A tie-in from last week. And remember what else Peter extols his readers to do. We're not going to go over it, but verses 13 through 23 of 1 Peter really give the entire context of the, of the chapter. But remember this from last week, talking about redemption, of, of the question, why does God redeem us? And we have to keep this into our mind, and we have to think of it in light of restoration. Be holy. Restoration, or the or the kingdom of God has begun with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. As believers, stay strong in your faith and use the sure hope of final restoration as an anchor for your souls because you will face suffering and persecution. Count on it. That's what Peter is saying in verses 13 to 23. 
but we are only here for a short while. Peter introduces his readers and he tries to get them to understand that they and we alike are exiles on this earth. This world is not our home. There used to be an old hymn that said, this earth is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Does anybody remember that hymn? It gets at this idea. We are exiles here. This is not our home. We are looking forward to our home. So while we're here, let us live in obedience to Christ. Obedience rooted in faith. And it's not a perfect obedience or a sinless perfection. But it is at least a stumbling forward. Are you stumbling forward? Or are you resting on your haunches? Mired in sin, assuming that since you repeated a line of a prayer many years ago that you are redeemed. Be cautious with such things. I don't get you to try to question your salvation. But I do get you to think How am I doing in this walk? Church, if you have no desire for obedience to Christ, I urge you to consider Paul's warning in 2 Corinthians 13.5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Let us strive to be salt and light. That is the purpose of our redemption. It is also the wellspring of true blessing. And we can consider Matthew 5. We're not going to move there, but if you'd like to write it down, Matthew chapter 5 is what that looks like. Our lives lived in obedience are to reflect the restoration that has already begun. And that's really getting at the root of the message. Our lives lived in obedience are to reflect the restoration that has already begun. Finally, the second part, the consummation of restoration, okay? So we've just talked about how the kingdom had come at Christ, and we are living in this already, not yet, but let's look forward to what the Scripture says about the consummation of restoration. What does this look like? Revelation 21. Let's turn to Revelation 21. And just hear this. This is such encouragement. Don't miss the encouragement. Sometimes I, I feel like we read with conviction and we, we should read and we should be convicted in our soul, but there are times when we need to read the scripture and just soak in it and know that we are the redeemed. And this is what our future holds, church. Revelation chapter 21, one to four. Listen to this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is, again, this is, this is John, the, the disciple, writing. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Wow. Let that hit. When I first started teaching Sunday school, I was in my mid-20s, and I was teaching adult Sunday school, and in my mid-20s, I thought I pretty much had an answer for every question. 
In my 30s, I realized I didn't have the answer to every question, and I find in my 40s, I often have more questions than answers. But I will tell you this. If you want to teach Sunday school and get some hard questions, teach the kids. (laughs) The kids will ask you questions from out of nowhere. One of them would be, what is heaven like? It's a great question. We need to think about it, and we need to put our mind on this, because I think we sometimes have an idea that may not be biblically accurate. Read Revelation 21. There are a few things that we can say definitively about what heaven will be like. One, heaven is God's presence fully manifested. Okay? That's what heaven is. Heaven is God's presence fully manifested. The veil is gone. In a glorified body, we can take God's presence. Okay? In this world, we cannot. God even says in Exodus, no man shall see me and live. Remember, Moses would ask, just let me see something about you. And, and God's like, no man can see me and live, Moses. But in that day with a glorified body, we will be able to handle God's glory. And so we will be where God is in full manifest glory. That's heaven. It's one thing we can say definitively about what is heaven. Second, heaven is a place. The new Jerusalem. I believe that heaven will be somewhere. It's a really deep thought, isn't it? I believe heaven will be somewhere. But I think sometimes we have this idea that's not accurate, that we're kind of floating around. Heaven is a place. Heaven is not an attitude. Heaven is not a figment of our imagination. Heaven is a place. It is where God's presence is fully manifested. It's where Jesus is, and Jesus is in a glorified body. We know that. We know that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he was in a glorified body, the body of resurrection. That's the same body, I believe, that you and I are going to be in. And heaven will be a place where a glorified body can exist in the presence of God. And when we see Jesus coming in, the Bible says this, Acts chapter 1, if you want to turn to it or write it down, Acts chapter 1, 10 and 11. This is Jesus at the ascension. Listen to what it says. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's a very clear statement. Indicating that whatever heaven is, it's a place where glorified bodies exist in the presence of God with Jesus Christ. It must be a place. And also, I think it's important to recall what we know of Jesus after the resurrection. What do we know? We have content in Scripture of what Jesus was doing after he was raised. Thomas saw and he touched the nail prints. We just read about it. Jesus sat and ate fish with the disciples. They laughed and they visited together. It's not ethereal, some dreamy state where we're all floating around in loincloths, playing harps. It's the restoration of creation. Paradise lost is now paradise restored. Okay? Full circle. Revelation 21, starting at verse 22. We're going to skip down. Revelation 21, starting at verse 22, and I'm just going to read into into chapter 22, down to verse 5. Just listen to this. Describing the new Jerusalem. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There's no concern in heaven of attack. The gates will be left open, it says, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, starting at chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. These leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Man, the nations will dwell together free from sin. Believers who have gone before will be there along with believers from every tribe, nation, and tongue. No more division. No more relational fragmentation. No more separation. No more broken race relationships. All the redeemed will be there worshiping. I also believe we'll be doing things. The Bible says a new heaven and a new earth. And I think it's reasonable for us to assume that the recreation may mirror the original creation in the sense that we were there to live in harmony with God and each other and to tend something. Again, it's not floating around on a harp, I don't believe. With a harp, I think we're going to be doing things. We're going to be in relationship. And most important, we're going to be in the presence of God. I also believe, and this is a little bit of speculation here, but that we'll be like who we are now minus sin. Does that make sense? Our hearts will desire to worship. But I believe the special things that make us us, if you will, will still be there just untainted by sinful desire. The important thing is all of our motives will be unstained by sin and our longing for the presence of God and Christ will be satisfied. That is the main thing. The fulfillment of of our longings unstained by sin in the presence of God. I've already quoted this at least once, I know, but C.S. Lewis understood this. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Beloved, as Christians, we were made for another world. Do you feel the draw of these things? Beyond our wildest imagination, put these things in your mind, I ask, and meditate on them. Think about the sure hope that awaits and remember that this life is simply a breath. In closing, I'm going to read an excerpt from a book. Many of you have probably read. It's Pilgrim's Progress. If you're not familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, it is an allegory of the Christian life, written hundreds of years ago by John Bunyan. And I've read this before, and I think uh, it just does a good job of kind of encapsulating what we've just been talking about. 
obviously not as good as scripture, but, but just think on these things. And again, this is an allegory and Bunyan, when he's writing, he, he, he uses a lot of imagery and he's talking about Mr. Standfast at the end of his days. And Mr. Standfast is simply a Christian, okay? That's who Mr. Standfast is. He's a Christian who's being called home, okay? And one other thing in context is he's, is, is he's going to talk about the river in here and the river is the symbol of death. And I just want you to hear these words and I, I don't want this to be a, end on a downer because I thought, I've read this before in, in, in the context of a funeral service, but it's not for a downer. This is the most encouraging thing that I know of. Listen to these words and be encouraged, When Mr. Standfast had thus set things in order, and the time had come for him to depart, he also went down to the river. There was a great calm on the river at that time. So Mr. Standfast went out into the water, and he stood a while, and he talked to his companions gathered on the shore. Again, this is death. He says, this river has been a terror to many. Yes, and the thoughts of it have also frightened me. But now I stand easy. My feet are fixed upon that on which the priest stood who bore the ark of the covenant when Israel went over Jordan. The waters indeed are to the mouth bitter and to the body cold. Yet the thought of what I am going to and of the convoy that awaits me on the other side lies like a glowing coal on my heart. Listen to what he says. I see myself now at the end of my journey. My toilsome days are over. I am going to see the head that was crowned with thorns and the face that was spit upon for me. I have been living by hearsay and faith, but now I am going to where I shall live by sight and I shall be with him in whose company I delight. I have loved to hear him spoken of, And wherever I could see his footprints on the sands of time, there I delighted to walk. His name has been to me a precious treasure, sweeter than all perfumes. His voice I rejoice to hear, and his face to me exceeds all beauty in earth and sky. His word I have used as food for my soul and for an antidote against my faltering. He has kept me back from my iniquities. He has held me fast. Yes, my steps he has strengthened in his way. As he finished the last sentence, his countenance changed and his strong frame bowed under him and he was gone after he said, take me, Lord, for I come to thee. And they could see him no more. But how glorious it was to see the sky beyond the river filled with horses and chariots, trumpeters and pipers, with singers, musicians, and myriads of immortals with waving palms to welcome the faithful home as they filed through the gate of the eternal city. Let's pray. Father, if you would, I pray that you would just allow the Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts. Father, as we have examined your words this morning, help us to know without a doubt of the sure hope which we cling to. And Father, the difficulties that we experience on this earth that are real and many Father, help us to use that as a time to glorify you through, through standing firm on the promise that you've made to us, knowing that this life is but a vapor, and knowing that one day we will be in heaven with you. 
Guide and direct us, Father. Help this to be a great joy to our soul as we consider the fact of our restoration because of redemption. Father, we look forward to that day when your kingdom is consummated. Father, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And Father, we look forward to the consummation of your kingdom with great anticipation and longing. And I pray that you would help us, as the biblical writer said, to set our minds on things above. Father, knowing that your promise is sure and it is safe and it is being guarded for us by you that no one can snatch it out of our hands. No one can snatch it out of your hands. Father, that we are secure in our salvation. Knowing that Christ has died and was raised and through faith in his name, we are redeemed. And Father, we look forward to this restoration, this time when we can be in your presence, unveiled. Guide and direct us. I pray that you would guide this church. Be with each one as they travel home today. Thank you for your many blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.